Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Almost Famous, the podcast where I meet other people who grew up with famous family members and discuss how that has affected their journeys through life. My guest today is writer and actor Rosa Hoskins. Rosa's performed on stage, television and film, as well as having worked as a personal stylist and fashion journalist. She's also published a book called It's All Going Wonderfully Well, about life growing up with her dad. Dad thought that a lot of the, the trappings of fame, I mean, he think he thought they were bullshit. Rosa's father is the late BAFTA and Golden Globe Award winning actor and director Bob Hoskins. plane lands in Moscow and they're going through the airport and he sees that, um, that there's like a crowd of people and they're all cheering. And he's thinking, wow, this is quite nice, isn't it? Um, and as he gets closer and closer, he realises that they're saying, Welcome to Russia, Danny DeVito! Bob was best known for his roles in films including Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Mermaids, Hook and Mona Lisa, but also did plenty of work on stage and on the television, including winning a Best Actor Emmy Award for his role in Jimmy McGovern's drama The Street on the BBC. When Rosa lived at home with her parents, apparently her dad Bob's usual response to her fashion choices were, got your acceptance speech ready, love, so we're expecting some award-winning chat today. Hello, Rosa, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm well, I'd like to apologise for that really horrible link that I had just from <laughs> something that I read on your website to a way of getting you into this uh, podcast. I, I've, I was struggling with it. I knew I'd have to apologise. What can it's I say? Like you don't have to apologise at all. That's absolutely. Well, I've got kind of quite a multi-stranded, you know, slightly jack-of-all-trades career. So yeah. actually, I think you did the segue quite well. I struggle with that myself. So I think actually, do you know what? Actually, I'm going to steal that from you because I think you did it that well. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> I also thought it gave a good insight into. Uh, it sounds like your dad was a right laugh, took the piss out of you. A, a really um, funny line. Yeah, no, he was very, he was very, very funny. Um, he was quite caustic. Um, yeah, he. I think there are lots of things that I really miss about him, um, and I think that his sense of humour was really one of them because he was so unique. He had such a sort of. I don't know, I guess quite a sort of surreal way of viewing the world. Um, not not a surreal way of viewing the world. He had a surreal response to things. He would he would kind of say and do things that even though I knew him incredibly well, obviously, but it was still, he would make a joke that would be so kind of bizarre. Um, and I miss that so much because I don't think, he, he was a real one-off, my dad. He was a... God, he was a once in a lifetime yeah. person, you know, and there, uh, yeah, no, he was very funny and he was very, he he would 
tease other people, but he he was usually the butt of his own jokes. Yeah. And how much of your of your life with your father and your family life around each other would you say was uh, was based on him trying to make people laugh and trying to make you feel <laughs> like everything's funny and a laugh? Yes, it was. It was, and and that we had we definitely had quite a lot of banter. And and the thing with my dad and I is that we were very similar, um, and so I think in a way, kind of. When he died, I didn't just lose a dad. I lost kind of a part of myself. Mm. Um, and I've I've kind of had to work quite hard at not trying to replace him. Mm. Because I think sometimes I've gone down um, kind of misguided avenues, kind of career-wise and in my friendships and sort of personal relationships where I've been looking for him and I think because he was away a lot when I was a kid uh, there's still a part of me that's kind of expecting that he's going to come back yeah um so I think that but then I do remember how funny he was and I do remember how kind of I don't know how I mean a really good example of him being the butt of his own jokes he (laughs) he um went on a uh a PR trip um, to Russia, he was publicising a film. This is back in the nineties, and um, he wasn't really looking forward to going to Moscow. But you know, he was kind of accepted it was part of the deal. Mm. So he rocked up in the, the plane lands in Moscow, and they're going through the airport, and he sees that, um, that there's like a crowd of people with signs and placards, and they're all cheering, mm. and they're getting increasingly excited as he gets closer. And he's thinking, wow, this is quite nice, isn't it? Um, and as he gets closer and closer, he realises that they're saying, welcome to Russia, Danny DeVito. <laughs> <laughs> and that was... that was, um, And I think the thing is, he told that story with quite a lot of joy. Like, a lot of actors yeah. would be pissed. Yeah. They'd be so cross. Um, but he wasn't. And he, fa- he found... I think he found himself the funniest yeah. thing. Not, not thinking that he was... He in an, not thinking that he was you know a genius comedian, but he found I think he found himself slightly ridiculous. Yeah, it's self awareness, isn't it? Yeah. And and, and to me, um, I think the difference between so a word I see used with your dad a lot is authentic, yeah, and authenticity. Yeah, and I totally get that. And also reading a lot about him where he grew up, Finsbury Park, and mm. and, that, and and living in a similar area, knowing what what people are like who grew up around there, there is an authenticity about Londoners. Mm. And I personally think the difference between actors who I look at. Uh, you know, not just actors, but actors and comedians and people in the public eye that I look at and I'm impressed by or feel make good work is is a self-awareness, an ability to take the piss out of themselves mm. and then an ability to be brilliant but be humble at the same time. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's very true. And I think um, I think it's kind of also, you know, not taking it that seriously. You know, I mean, Dad would sort of say, well, you know, no one died. Yeah. You know, we're not, you're not like, you know, whether you're in acting or in fashion or whatever, you're not saving lives, you know, and I I think that he had it in perspective. And I I think he was quite boundaried around his work and his family life. Like he would, when he came back from a job, he had this expression, he called it flushing, where he would basically have to kind of divorce himself, clean himself of his previous part, kind of almost like scrub it off himself because now he was back, he wanted to be with us. And I think 
Um, totally present. Yeah, mm. I mean, he wasn't always very good at being present. Um, and, I, and I've been kind of been quite... Um, me trying to be as self-aware as possible. Like, I've been quite wary of, of not um, painting him to be a saint. Because when I wrote my book about him, I... Um, it, it would have been very easy for me to kind of write about the perfect dad um, because, you know, he... I mean, I, I think writing that book, I, while I don't regret it at all, um, I think it was not entirely wise because I started... God, he died in the April and I started writing it in July... Um, so therapy, you know, self self therapeutic. You think at the time? Yes, it was it was cathartic for sure. Um, I I think really it was a bit unwise. I think it was a bit too soon. I think really what I should have done was given it at least six months. But the thing is, there was interest in the in in it, and I'd written this blog post that went viral, um, and you know that there there was sort of. I, I don't know if if I if I had have waited, I might not have got a book deal. So I guess I I I, I suppose in those kind of early months when uh, you're still in shock after you've lost someone, mm-hmm. um, you, you just kind of I don't know. You're kind of half blind, aren't you? I don't know if you've ever experienced the loss of someone, but you don't. The decisions that you make when you're in that space mm. are. Um, I don't know. I don't think you can really be held that accountable when you're in that space because you're so. Um, oh god! I mean, I th- I felt like quite institutionalized because I'd spent so much time with dad in hospital that I, I yeah I didn't know, I barely knew my own name. Um, so in in hindsight, so and you say you think it's unwise, unwise on a level of, as you mentioned, probably too soon for you. Yeah. Um, do you think in terms of the narrative of your story, would that have changed had you left it a few years? Or do you, you think th- the story's the same, really? I think the story would be the same. Mm. Um, and I I was very mindful of um, writing him as he was. I didn't want to write a kind of sugar-coated version of him, I guess because he didn't sugarcoat things. Mm. Um, and he, like you say, he was very authentic and very real. I mean, he was a funny combination, my dad, because in, in some ways he had that very gritty... Um, working class sort of background. Uh, however, he could also be really sentimental about certain things. He mm. was he was quite a romantic. Mm. Um, but I really wanted to re- to write about all of him, and I didn't just want to write from the perspective of I don't know a bewildered grieving child I mean because sometimes I think grief can kind of make you regress Mm. Um, so it was really important to me to remember him as he was and it was also really important because I felt like if I could kind of write down if I could capture him as he was then somehow I would preserve him Um, and I think that I, I wanted that um, I wanted that to give to... I didn't have kids when I was writing it, but I knew that when I wanted... When I had children, I wanted to give them something that was kind of an accurate sort of document almost. But also I wanted to have that kind of memory both for me and for um, any sort of future child who wouldn't get to meet their granddad. Um, 
I think in a lot of in, sorry to interrupt, but in a lot of ways, um, I can totally understand how hard that must have been to do, and how hard it is even to think about having. But in there are so many positives to that as yeah, well. So many great positives, like you said, about your your own children and 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 their relationship with their grandfather, but also um, for further down the line as things go along and. Uh, I think just the natural passing of time, like you said, to mm. have it almost like a to go along with his films and his and his work mm. on screen and mm. and stuff, mm. and obviously what other people talk about him, how other people talk about him, but also to have something that was of the time. So so even though you say you know that was hard at the time, to have written it at the time, I think is also a really good time capsule. Yeah, yeah, no, it is, it is. I mean, I I think that I think you're right, and I think that it was something. I kind of think that it was something that I needed to do. Um, and I think whenever I, I think, I mean, as you can probably hear from my voice, like I still find this really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to talk about him and I want to remember him. And I, I never, I would never regret writing that book. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's, I don't know. It, I think sometimes you just are where you are in life. Like sometimes you you look back and you kind of go well maybe that wasn't the right thing to do but that's you you sometimes just have to react to to what you're being faced with don't yeah. you can i i just latch on to something you said as well which is about um not wanting to write or the way i heard it is is not wanting to write something about your father that wasn't real and and whole mm. uh, and by that i i kind of get the kind of you know not just giving a positive spin on who your dad was all the time the rea- mm. you you talking about him not always being present etc mm. from just having um recorded these podcasts and having i think you know we we've, we've done you know just around 10 now um some people some people aren't real with themselves no some people aren't real with themselves and their relationships with um, in this instance, their fathers or or their parents or their siblings, and it comes across. And what mm. really comes across just from these first few minutes with you is that you're so real and you're mm. so, um, you know, you couldn't. I don't think you could put a spin or you could lie about your dad if you tried. And that's no. to me, to me, that is like that's what love is 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 a full whole uh, example of of your relationship with a person. Um, through pros and cons and faults and and the best times and the worst times. Well, I think. Oh God, I'm gonna I'm gonna just help myself to yes. these these tissues the lovely, just here. Just to, believe it or not, we I'm, didn't we didn't have bring these in especially. Did you these are just here anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, <laughs> because yeah. we've both been ill. We've both yeah, been ill yeah, over yeah, Christmas. Yeah, we talked about it, that. That's it. Yeah, it's not that we're emotional wrecks. Um, uh, yeah. No, I I I think a few things in regards to what you just said. I think that. First of all, I think that I think that grief is the cost of love, and I think it costs what it was worth. And I would rather feel this grief. I would wa- rather kind of carry this around with me than not have had him. Mm. Um, and I think that that realness. I guess I I I feel like it can. I feel like sharing it can be useful. Because I think that we all go through something like this in some shape or form. And, I mean, I've, you know, obviously watching my dad, you know, basically die a very slow and painful death and then dealing with the kind of the fallout of that. But then also, because I have bipolar disorder, um, you know, kind of managing that on a day-to-day basis... Sometimes I look back on things and I feel, I mean, I'm very privileged and I'm by no means 
complaining at all, but this is just these are just the facts of mm. what's happened. Um, I feel that if I can do something of use with those experiences, if I can help someone else maybe not feel quite so alone or um, maybe I can kind of validate somebody else's experience, then that time that I lost mm. didn't go to waste. Absolutely. Because it's, it's but you know, th- there's been some sort of pragmatic use. It's been of service to someone. But also, I mean, Dad and I... Um, Dad, Dad and I actually were quite blunt with each other about our relationship and our sort of connection. Um, and we even went to therapy together um, because, I, I mean, I was desperate to be close to him um, and he didn't always know how to do that. Um, I don't... I've never blamed him for that. Mm. Um, I think that was kind of given the life that he'd come from that was kind of to be expected but um i think so i so i've always come from a place of um being honest and frank and i, I and i mean now something that i find really hard is dealing with passive aggression because dad was so actively aggressive and he would never um he he just he just wasn't passive aggressive if if he was pissed with you about something He'd say, mm. or if he thought you were pissed with him about it, he'd be like, "Fuck's your problem, love," mm. and you ju- and you just kind of you either sort of dealt with it then and there, or you didn't and you moved on. Yeah. Um, and I mean, he had quite a temper, and he would get really angry about things. But it would be, and as a little kid, that could be quite scary. But as time kind of passed, and I became, I don't know, I guess when I was a teenager or then an adult, I kind of. I could a see the funny side of it because you know a five foot six man getting very cross <laughs> could just just is kind of funny in and of itself. But um, I I kind of learn the value in that. Yeah. And actually, there is there is a lot of value in expressing how you fucking feel at the time, yeah. and it's okay. And like, if something makes you angry, it's fine. Get angry. Yeah. Fuck it. You know um, the the benefit. Uh, you know, it's really interesting because I've cer- I'm certainly capable of passive aggression, mm. and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I'm really afraid of, in a lot of ways, afraid of proper confrontation really? and afraid of the reaction of will people just walk away if you if you really are angry and say how you feel. But the benefit from the way you talk about it is that you always knew where you stood. Absolutely, absolutely, and it, and it's str- and that's the thing that stresses me out. And and the thing is, most people aren't like my dad mm. or m- me. Most people are not comfortable with confrontation. No, they're more like me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's true. And, and it's usually because um, people feel that their relationships or that their kind of interactions with people are... Um, conditional and that if you uh, do something to upset someone else or you do something that kind of, um, I guess, uh, confronts their values or or questions their actions, then they're not going to like you anymore Mm. or they're not going to love you anymore and then they're going to leave. Um, So I think most of us kind of, and I think, this is a bit armchair psychology a bit, but I, I think that, you know, that comes from, you know, when we're kids and and we have our feelings and, you know, sometimes, I mean, I've got, you know, a two-year-old and I have to kind of, as much as you've got to set boundaries, you also have to, I think a lot of children feel that they can't 
be their real self. They can't be true um, because, you know, we, we get validation from being good. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, you're, you know, you didn't have a tantrum. You're a good, you know, you're a good boy. Mm. Um, when actually the the tantrum, it's okay to have a tantrum. Yeah. It's okay to lose your shit. Yeah. And then uh, they get put on the naughty step. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm sort of really trying, and it's interesting, you don't kind of really understand that until, I, I certainly didn't understand that until I had my son. Mm. Um, and it's kind of, you, I think it's striking a balance between sort of saying, your feelings are okay. Mm. There's nothing wrong with you having these feelings. You can't do that. You can't, you know, like get hold of a, a box of eggs and start throwing them on the floor in the supermarket. That's not cool. But, you know, so it's... And I, and I, and I think Dad was very like that. Dad was very... Um, he wasn't afraid of confrontation. He wasn't afraid of other people's feelings. And I, I think that that came from quite a deep and innate inner confidence. Yeah. Um, and a sort of, I guess... Uh, a strength, a sort of deeply rooted sort of sense of um, his own worth in the world. Yeah, of self, sense of self. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's um, I'm very jealous of that. Yeah, I'm very I am. jealous of that. I am as well. I mean, I, I, I got some of that. Yeah. I got some of it. Um, I don't have it as much as he it's he did. Maybe I'll get get it more as I get older. Are there scenarios that you find yourself in where you, you, re- you behave in a way where you're like, fuck yeah, I did that. I'm really glad I I reacted like that, and that's what my dad that's what my dad instilled in me. Yeah, I think there are. I think there are. Yeah, I think there are nice. times. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I mean, I guess because Dad and I were so similar. Um, so sometimes, sometimes I it's not that I'm kind of it's not something that I particularly congratulate myself over, but I kind of I recognise. Right. Like I'll say something or do something. And I'm like, oh, oh, hi, Dad. There you are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I guess. That, yeah, I I suppose as time wears on, that kind of it becomes more of a comfort. Yeah, that's um, there are a few things you've talked about that I want to go back to. Firstly, mm. um, with the book, mm. I want to talk a bit about more about the book. Um, in it, uh, I, I I haven't read it, but I've read a bit about or I've read some stuff about you talking about it. You went back and spoke to some of some old colleagues of mm. his and people who've known him who'd known him a long time ago to try and give an idea of whether he'd changed or uh, whether he was the same person all the time. And, and what came across is that people would just say Bob was always Bob. Oh, yeah. No, he, he was... Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I spoke to... Some of the first people I interviewed were very uh, a- a- actor friends of Dad's. Um, he's a lovely couple called um, Dave and Jane who've known Dad since his very first job when he was 25. Mm. And I said, my first question actually was, uh, well, how, wh- how did he change? I mean, you know, you must have noticed changes in him. And they just both were like, he didn't. Mm. He didn't change at all. He was exactly the same. He's, um, And again, I think it's that sense of self, though. I think it's that kind of, um, I don't know, I guess that, that self-esteem. Mm. Um, but also, but, even, sorry to interrupt, but even as, a, even as someone who's watched a fair few of his films, mm. I think there are semblances of what I imagine to be his character that come out in in most of his films, that kind of slight eccentricity, ability to be funny and just down-to-earthness. Mm, mm. Um, I think that's a really, you know, a, an amazing thing. Yeah, I, 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 and I think that he was able to... I, I, I mean, I think that acting isn't so much about putting stuff on as it is about revealing 
what's in, inside you, you know. And I and I think that, um, and I think that Dad really understood that. And I think that he knew that his almost his trump card, given that he was so masculine and quite gritty and tough, um, I think he knew that his trump card was his vulnerability. And he knew that playing people like Harold Shand in The Long Good Friday um, or any other number of his characters, actually, for that matter, like he knew that to make those parts real and powerful and to kind of really... uh, to give them real depth and dimension, the key was always going to be to... to... I guess, oh, this is going to sound a bit wanky, but like that's all right. To, <laughs> to sort of reveal his own pain, yeah, you know, and to and to and I think again, it was something that he felt comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and I find now, like I'm, uh, I'm going to be touring a one woman show in um, the fall, the, the autumn this year, um, and I, I realise that I, I, I kind of there have been times when I've been rehearsing it and I've thought mm, this isn't quite. This isn't quite landing or whatever, and I just remember what Dad used to say, and it it was always invariably something about, um, <laughs> uh, you know, remember the lines, don't don't bump into the furniture, <laughs> but also um, don't try too hard, don't don't try to be perfect, don't try to be technical, just be real, be yeah. and be let let the audience in, yeah, you know, um, and. I think the show, and it, 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 it's kind of, it's a funny one, like when someone's gone, because sometimes whatever I do now, it almost feels like it doesn't really matter because he's not here to see it. Um, but I mean, the show that I'm working on, I'm really proud of. And I think, and I know that dad would have loved it. It was, it's called um, 213 Things About Me. Um and it's based on the real life of an autistic woman who was very good friends with the writer and director. Um, and she was like a musical genius and a mathematical genius. And, you know, she taught herself to play 12 instruments, five languages, um, really complex calligraphy and embroidery and knitting. And, uh, you know, but she was brilliant. Um, but she um, committed suicide because she couldn't find her place in the world. Um and I know that Dad would have loved that. He would have loved it. He would have loved the kind of the originality of it, but he would also love the kind of the the strangeness mm-hmm. of that. Um, so I think kind of the challenge now, kind of as I go through life, is sort of to... Um, oh, thank you very much. Um, the challenge now for me is to kind of move forward while I don't know trying to trying to find the the joy um and the kind of, I, I guess sort of trying to enjoy my achievements um without him being here and to just to sort of realise that just because he's not here it doesn't mean that it's not valid. No of course. And um talking about your one woman show is a perfect segue for me because uh this is a this is a podcast about you, <laughs> definitely about you. I mean, we've had this amazing talk about your dad and how that links to you and, and who you are and your personality and stuff. Mm. But um, 
I'm always intrigued to know when people follow their um, very successful and in your father's case, very famous um, parent into a similar career, whether you feel like that's something that you did because of what you experienced and what you saw or kind of despite it and, and how difficult that decision was for you. I, th- I, it wasn't really a choice. I always felt that that was just who I was and who I am. I mean, in some ways, I kind of, it's not always been very easy. And I definitely, I mean, I've had some success. I've done some cool things, but I've, I have found it um, hard. Uh, and I think partly because, um, I, I think dad's, Dad's success was kind of slightly miraculous. Um, obviously, he was supremely talented, um, but you know you don't really get really, really famous, really successful working class actors who didn't go to drama school, who just kind of started, who just basically sort of wandered into a th- into an audition, got a part, and then 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 started their career. And he was out. He I don't think he was out of work a day in his life. Mm. So. That is that can be really hard. Um, Another thing to be jealous of. I know. Well, I I, I think I don't think I'm. I, I am. Oh yeah, right, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, no, I mean, no, I can understand. It's um, no, it was you know he had an enviable career for sure, but I think one of the biggest kind of scourges at the moment with um, mental health is compare and despair, right? Mm. So scrolling through Instagram late yeah. at night. No, I saw you wrote a great blog post about comparison. Yeah, thank stuff. you. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, no, I think, and it, and it, so, you know, it's it's something that we all kind of have to deal with um, in the modern, unless you kind of go off the grid and, you know, do, like, um, don't use social media. But I think to have compare and despair to a parent mm. who's died, that can be a bit tricky. It can be quite a kind of quagmire. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, yeah, so I don't think it was really a choice to to go into it. Um, I, In some ways, I, I, I kind of wish that I could have my time again. And I think I would still um, have gone into acting Mm. um but i if i could sort of talk to my 20 year old self i would say yeah fine do it you know that's that's what you want to do it's in your blood it's kind of where you i sort of feel that it's not my destiny because i don't believe in destiny but i i feel that it's just who i am it's Mm. not what i do it's who i am um but i would also i would say to myself like right but you can write and i and you can sing so you know like start a wedding band right start writing a blog you're into fashion so you know kind of and and I think if my if my son wants to go into it my advice would be yeah fine go you know go for it give it all you've got but have like a side hustle have like a little business do do something else as well yeah because I think what I was doing um certainly early on was going into castings um with too much riding on it uh, and kind of needing it so much um, because I felt because I felt like this is my identity. I have to do this. If I don't do this, then I don't know who I am. Um, and I think that that probably kind of stank a bit of desperation. Right. And I think that um, I think that you 
it's a bit like going on a date. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you're if you desperate for it to work out. I talk a lot about, with dates, I talk a lot about the whiff of desperation yeah, yeah, on yeah. dates. And it, exactly. it, and it, it shows itself within 10 seconds. Oh, uh, absolutely. And, the, mm. and, you know, it, and it's, and I think that that's what I was walking in with. I also think that um, because I was diagnosed with bipolar when I was 30, I think I was bringing in a bunch of my mental health mm. stuff mm-hmm. um, that... I wasn't aware of but again I think that would have not exactly put people off and I and I didn't I, I think one of the most frustrating things is that usually the feedback from my castings was really good mm. um but I think I was I don't know I was just bringing I was bringing in a lot of baggage yeah the fascinating thing about that is it really links it really links back to what you've said previously which is you know your dad's advice being don't try too hard, but you weren't allowing yourself to be relaxed because you had so much stuff in your your head. Exactly, exactly. And I and I think that, and I was so ashamed of my mental health right. for for years. And I mean, before I was diagnosed, I knew that there were things, you know, there were things that were obviously not right, like you know, eating disorders and um, impulse control disorders. There were lots of you know pretty uh, kind of self evident. Um, illnesses and issues going on um and i think that so again like desperation you can kind of smell it i I think you can smell shame um and i think so i was basically kind of carrying around a huge amount of baggage that i didn't really i didn't really I i felt very heavy with it but i didn't know what it was um and i think it was only after i was diagnosed that things kind of started to make sense Mm -hmm. and you know when I eventually found the right kind of balance of medication and the right doctor and all these things suddenly it it was like oh oh yeah fine um and I think that that's allowed me to do I don't think I would have been capable of doing a one-woman show yeah before then ready to pop the question the jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And to people who may be listening to this who suddenly having a realization that maybe they are in similar situations not just you know not just actors but going into work or interviews or or important situations and not quite understanding maybe why it is that they're not coming not 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 coming across how they want to but that that there are other things baggage involved mm-hmm. like what in hindsight what do you think you know how how could you have been um diagnosed earlier what would you have changed on that front i think if i had well, there are a few things. I th- I think um, if I'd have known about my diagnosis, or if I'd have known that, um, if I'd have known that there was something going on that wasn't in my control, and that th- that it wasn't about me, that it wasn't that I. Because I, I, I mean, the, the the so I guess like depression's kind of playbook, the thing that goes over in my mind again and again and again is you're a failure. Okay. You're a failure. You failed. You're a failure. Um, and I and I felt that for a really, really long time. And I think that is a little bit to do with being, you know, the, the child of someone who's yeah. very famous and successful. Yeah, compare and despair. Quite, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that what I, I... I think I would sort of often say, like, oh, why can't I just shake it off? Why can't I just kind of pull myself together? Why can't I just... You know, I, this isn't how... I should be feeling. Now, of course, should is, I think, one of the most toxic words in the English language um, because I, I, I think if I had have been armed with the information that it wasn't my fault and the way I was feeling was to do with an illness, I think I probably would have let my given myself a bit of a break yeah. and kind of given myself the space to sort of go, okay, right, well, you're having a bad day. You've got an audition today. That's not ideal. But let's exercise as much self-care as possible. Let's be as kind and as gentle as possible with yourself That then, uh, in the same way that you would be with a close friend. Um or, or someone, you know, a, a loved one. Mm. Um, and I think that... I think the problem with having a mental illness is that it, it's very hard to to remind yourself that it's not you. That, 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 that that's not you. Like, my husband will quite say, that's your illness talking. Mm. That's not you talking. You're, you're, you're not here. Like... He doesn't say it like it sort of how do, how can I explain it? Like he'll say, um, I don't feel like you're really in the room with me right now. I feel like I'm talking to your illness and I want you to come back to me. Mm-hmm. Um And I mean I was diagnosed uh after my dad um got sick and I never told him. Mm. Um because A, I'm not sure his um, the neurological deterioration was really rapid. Mm. Yeah, he had Parkinson's disease. Just for people who didn't know, partly. Well, yeah, I mean, he had a sort of Parkinson's plus. Um, okay. It was um, 
Uh, initially, he was diagnosed with Lewy bodies disease. That's, uh, that's what my father has, interestingly. Oh, really? Yeah, right. Okay. Dementia with Lewy bodies. Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, so that was he was initially diagnosed Which is incredibly with... difficult to diagnose. You Basically, your diagnosis is it's probably this, but we're not sure. Exactly, exactly, exactly. How long has your dad had it? Well, I think because of that, it's really hard to tell. But, I mean, for my head, things... We started noticing things probably as long as seven or eight years ago. Right. And then diagnosis, I think, was probably around four or five years ago. Right, right, and then right. And kind of the steady to more now recent, uh, more more rapid decline. Right, right. Well, that, that's that's a relative... I mean, I think that's probably a more normal amount of time. Dad's, dad's was quite quick. Right. So he was... We noticed... So was he misdiagnosed? I think so, yeah. So he was initially diagnosed with Lewy bodies and then straight Parkinson's and then this thing called... PSP yeah. um, is really weird. I can never hold on to these words. I think it's probably because it's the thing that killed him. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we assume. But I progressive supernuclear palsy. I have to like think and because it's really hard to say. It is really hard to say. <laughs> but I have to think really. As, it's like my brain doesn't want to know those words. No, like I really have to stretch for them. But um, yeah, no, that's for for your dad. That's that's much longer than that. Dad's was pretty relatively brief because mm. um, he we started noticing symptoms probably 2008 or 9 he was diagnosed in 2011 and he died in 2014 mm. um and it was quite rapid you know the sort of the difference from year to year um but May I ask just on a this on a kind of selfish personal level, of as a family, how did you deal with the issue of what to tell your dad, or was he totally across his diagnosis the whole time, or was there any element at any point of holding things back for, um, you know, on a personal level, for instance, some decisions have been made in terms of my father in terms of holding things back because either he won't remember them anyway, or why upset him any more than sure. he's upset already, etc. Et but in what area? Like, to, to do with his diagnosis? Or... To do with his diagnosis, yeah. Right, so I I think with him, we always told him the truth with regards to his illness. Hmm. Um, not everybody, certainly in terms of researching on the internet, not everyone hmm. recommends that, in, certainly in the instance of what my father has. Anyway. Yeah, um... But I think it's. I think I personally think that that's what I would choose to do if I. I do you know what? To be honest, if I, I were in that situation, I don't think that we talked about it that much. I think there was a lot of, you know, when he was diagnosed, mm. um, there was a lot of discussion around it then, and he was and he was still relatively fun- high functioning, um, and then he. I remember sitting with him having a tea in in his kitchen in at my mum and dad's house. And um, he was just sitting there with a the mug of tea. I remember it so clearly. And it, I think it was a couple of days or, or a day after the diagnosis. He just sat and he just went, fuck it. <laughs> and I think that was his way of saying, nothing I can fucking do. Yeah. I've got to just try and make, I've got to try and make the best of this. I've got to, you know, live whatever I have left mm-hmm. with. I've, I've got to try and um, extract the most out of life. Yeah, um, and very much in keeping with with what he was and who he uh, was he, anyway. Yeah, no, and that that absolutely who he, he was. I mean, I think Dad was someone who defined himself by what he liked 
rather than what he didn't like or what he was against. Right. And I think so many people, we kind of, we're very much about, especially in these ex- yeah. extremely polarised yeah. times, we're so much about what we're against that we forget, well, what do you actually like? Yeah. You know, what, what are you actually living for? Why are you here? Um, and he, he was very good at that. And he was very, God, I mean, you know, even in, he was, you know, staring down the barrel of death and decrepitude and and he knew that he was losing a little piece of himself every day which is partly why I wrote the book because I I, I don't know if you've experienced this with your dad but watching someone fall apart piece by piece by piece you know without your memories you don't have anything mm. um, but I think that he was really able even though that was going on he was so brave I mean, just so, so brave. So, um, he, he would, he didn't complain. He never complained. He never sort of, um, put up a, he was very easy patient. You know, he was very easy to look after. Um, and I was lucky because, um, at the time my mum and dad lived on the same street as us. Um, and, I could just pop over there. I spent a lot of time with him and I could just kind of swing by and mm. um, hang out for a bit. Or what he used to do um, when I was uh, I was working from home a lot, I was writing, and he would just come over and just hang out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'd sit in the kitchen and I'd, you know, he'd watch telly and I'd write at the kitchen table and and I had... And he would just sort of... He would always say... Oh, I've had such a nice afternoon with you. And I think he kind of he lost his filters. Yeah. Which often is the case, um, with those sorts of illnesses. But he so he would sometimes say things that were like possibly a bit inappropriate. Right. Um but also he would say lovely things. Yeah, no lovely little memories. Yeah. Like, that's such a lovely even yeah. such a little line that probably um, Yeah. In real, in, I say in real, but in in a situation where you haven't had to go through that, that would easily be forgotten. You know, what yeah. I mean? but, but because it meant some. Oh, know. they're gems now. Yeah. They're gems. I mean, I, I'll I'll tell you the last thing he ever said to me. I've got these tissues on the ready. Um, the last thing he ever said. This was in when he was in te- intensive care. He said, "You're the most beautiful girl in the world, and I love you so much." Yeah. And that now holds me through there's gold in the bank that yeah. holds me through um, because I realised that I was loved and that that I still am mm. because that, that it doesn't go away and I think that actually there's even though dad had this kind of very big like expansive life um, and I think one of the hardest things was to watch that life get smaller and smaller so you know first of all he had to quit work and then he became housebound and then he couldn't move at all um and watching that kind of shrink down was you know deeply painful and distressing however i think in a way there's a lot of wisdom to be found in how he was at the end because you know he'd had all the sort of glittering prizes, you know, pretty much that anyone could ask for. But I think what he valued the most was 
his time with us. So just having a cup of tea together or, you know, just, um, you know, just these these little moments that you you don't you don't realize that you're in the good old days until they've gone yeah um sorry i, I bet that's no don't <laughs> I, I bet that's totally invaluable for you as well in terms of how you parent yeah because you know i think i'm not a parent but mm. i but i can imagine that a lot of baggage and um parental politics and family politics mm. uh, actually probably holds me off on going down that route quite Mm. heavily. Mm. Um, uh, And I I also don't doubt that a lot of the grief that you've gone through will must play on you as well in terms of, you know, what your children will have to go through as well. But in reality, I feel like those positives, those things that even those little, little comments that you're talking about or those days you had together or that stuff must help you in terms of knowing what it's important to say to your children to go with them along their, their yeah, journeys. Absolutely. No, I think that's no that's very true. Um I mean there's always the there's there's always the, the, the kind of the pain of knowing that that um you know that my son will never meet yeah. dad. You know, there's all there's always that. Um but I think that I mean dad was not a perfect parent. He bless his heart. He did his best. He really did. But, um, but what he did do when he was around was um, he just gave me his time. And like when I was very little, we'd spend a lot of time like going to the park together, or going to the zoo, going because my brother and I are quite close in age. So mm-hmm. when my brother was a baby, um, dad would t- kind of take us out to sort of get us out of mum's sort of out of her way Um, and yeah we went to like the Little Angel Puppet Theatre in Islington and we went you know we just he just spent time and I think actually that's kind of all all children want really they just want your time no that's absolutely right you know Um, and yeah also in in terms of um, I find that really that's really kind of uh, interesting Mm. important thing because I have a situation with my father now where I would say the opposite of what you've said in terms of when your father was um, getting sicker and sicker is that I'm not spending nearly enough time with my dad. I think it's really important. And uh, and I, I know that it's really important, but I'm also, um, there is some, there's some definite hard family politics involved, so mm. not, not to do with my relationship with my father, but also there is some deep-rooted... Um, issues in terms of what you just talked about which is the reality is I didn't spend much time with my father when I was growing up right so that's where what I what I really feel hard from you which is this common bond that you and your father shared that Mm. that is so positive but also leads into the the harshness of your grief Mm. is where there's a slight disconnect for me which is I didn't spend much time I, I spent kind of you know the the minimum requirement time with him which was you know once a fortnight or slightly less right and as a result now um I think there's there's resentment sure. there's resentment of that which I should be the bigger man I mean I'm talk, I'm talking about this re- 
reticently, in fact. Sure. But um, there's resentment to that, and then there's family politics on top of that, which I which I, I think massively overtakes that, in fact. But that's not really worth going into. But I completely agree with you, and it is absolutely... You know, I should be spending more time with him. I and, think... And, uh, and I regret that whilst I'm doing it. Do you know what I mean? I don't know I if that makes this, sense. It no, it doesn't. Does, no, it totally makes sense. I get it. I mean, I think... I, I mean, if I can sort of offer you some like unsolicited advice, please. Um, I think that it's really important that when they eventually go, that you can look back and say, "I don't regret anything." Like I did my best. Yes, of course, the um, situation is not ideal. Yes, it's complicated. Yes, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. But if it's possible for you to kind of slightly compartmentalise and just, you know, go over for an hour every week. Mm. And even if it's just, I'm just going to hang out with you for an hour, then that's enough. And as long as you've given them as much time as you can Mm. and you're giving them um, as... You're kind of giving them space as well. Like... I, I, one of the lovely things about writing the book is that I started off by interviewing Dad before he... I, I realised that I couldn't write it while he was still alive because it was going to be too painful. But um, I, I initially sat down with him for quite a few hours and talked to him um, about lo- loads of different things. Um, but I think that I look back on that time and I know that I was the best daughter that I could have been um, given the circumstances Mm. Um, and that is a comfort when they've eventually gone Mm. to to know that you couldn't have done anything more it just it just puts a whole bunch of anxiety Mm. and sort of regret and guilt it just puts it to bed so even if you're only seeing him you know a designated amount of time sure. um it it does make um grief easier and actually i i think possibly even more importantly say say i love you yeah because when 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 they're gone i mean i i found with that i was just i sort of felt like if i could just say it one more time yeah Oh, if I could just see you for five five more minutes. Yeah. Um, Would your dad regularly, um, pre his illness, tell you that he loved you? And was was, yeah. was I love you a big part of, you know, there's only three words, but, uh, you know, that not only just the, the words, but words that encapsulate a feeling that keep you kind of warm and... Yeah, I don't think he wasn't... My mum's very good at that. Yeah, my um, mum is too. Yeah, <laughs> mum's thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he wasn't as good at that. He would say it, and I, I think he would show it, um, and he would... I think, like, he would, um, he was very um, great. He was great in a crisis and he was great if there was, I think sometimes he he struggled to say these things, but he found it easier to to, to demonstrate. Yeah. And if he had an opportunity to demonstrate those feelings, he would take it kind of straight away. And I think it was partly because he wanted to express it, but he wasn't sure how and I think there was a little bit of frustration for him there because he knew what he wanted to say and do. But like I remember <laughs> I remember this one time I got on the wrong bus um <laughs> outside Alexandra Palace. Right. 
I was going up to, this is when they lived in um, Muswell Hill. And um, I got on the wrong bus and I, I was going up to see them. And um, I called dad up and I was oh, dad, fuck it. I've got on the wrong bus. Can you come get me? And he was like, yeah, where are you? And I'm like, I'm outside Ali Pali. And he's like, isn't it a bit quiet there? And I'm like, yeah, there's no one around. Within one minute, hmm. he was there. Yeah. That's a three-minute car journey. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I can, and I could hear in the distance this like, engine like... Yeah, scant regard for the law. Screeching. Down. And then like he comes like tearing around the corner like, oh, God, he must have been going at well over 70 miles an hour, like over the speed pumps, yeah. like ruining, it, ruining his suspension. But if there was... So like if something... If yeah. I needed him, yeah. bang, he was there. I really understand that feeling. Like I really understand that feeling of not always being able to... I mean, in in your instance, you're talking, I think, about not maybe not saying it as much. But uh, personally, I understand that feeling of not always perhaps saying the right things in terms of showing someone how you care about them. Because yeah. maybe you're maybe you're blocked by fear or insecurity or whatever, in yeah. my instance. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but then if something happens, you're just wanting to show... Yeah, in, also, in a way where in a way you like you'll be the first there and you'll be there for as long as it takes and you'll make sure that that person feels exactly. Comforted. And it's like, oh, you need me. Okay, fine, you need me. Right, I'm there. Yeah, you know. And not everyone has that actually. No, that's, that's a lot. Some people, some people don't uh, automatically. That's yeah. No, I totally understand that. Yeah. Um, I just thought because we talked at quite a lot of length about um both. Dementia with Lou bodies, and did you say PSP? Plus yeah. Did, is it worth a, a little explanation just for people who don't know um, what a little bit of what that is? So it, it's basically it comes under the bracket of kind of Parkinson's plus, right? Um, which definitely Louis body. Um, what is comes the plus under. then? It, it's kind of it's more aggressive. Right. It's more aggressive. It's more the it's more um, the the it's the, the the illness is um, what would what would have taken sort of maybe twenty years in someone who's with someone with Parkinson's. Yep. With that, it took three. Yeah. Um, well, so it's just a, it's that, attacking like it's attacking your body a lot more aggressively. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And I mean, what was funny about that was when you know when he was in hospital and stuff. He he, his lungs were fine. His liver was in really good nick. His heart was good. He, you know, it, everything. All his organs yeah. were great, and he still looked really strong. Yeah. But he was dying. Yeah. Um, and I think that <laughs> I think, but what, what was lovely about Dad? You, I mean, we were talking earlier about a sense of humour. Like he still found things funny. Like even when we were in hospital, um, there would still be things that he would joke about, and there would still be even that when he was, you know, completely. Um, so it couldn't have been more compromised. Yeah. But he still could have a laugh about things. Yeah. It's, I feel like that's really an instinct um, as well, just to turn it back to me, which I'll, I'll, do, more, <laughs> I'll do more than I probably should. But it's like I got, uh, I was in hospital a couple of years ago because I got uh, glassed in the face. Oh, Jesus. And I remember I was there with, you know, my girlfriend. And uh, there is an instinct, though, that even in like a point where you're in shock or you're uh, in a place where you know it's really dire and people are affected by it, mm. where you want to. I think you either have that or you don't. You want to try and make jokes about it or you want to try and make that person feel comfortable. Yeah. Well, and I, think, that, I really love that that it was something he was still doing. Oh, yeah. No, he was very like much like that. I, I think that it's a way... I think humour is a way of processing things and yeah. it's a way of... I mean, the situation is anything but funny, mm. but you use humour um, as a way of getting through. Yeah. You know. And it also comes back to you talking a lot about how he never complained, which, no. you know, humour is a... 
a far more positive way for both yourself and others, I think, than complaining. Mm. So um, I appreciate that as well. Mm. And then just so you talked about PS, uh, Parkinson's Plus, just for people at home who don't know maybe a lot about dementia with Lewy bodies, the best way I always describe it is um, it's kind of your, it's got all the elements of your standard dementia. So losing your memory, uh, etc. And, uh, but also, um, adds in some kind of strange stuff like paranoid delusions. Mm. It has elements of Parkinson's as well in terms of shaking and stuff mm. like that as well. Mm. Um, and then it is, uh, I also describe it this way, it's what in the end uh, Robin Williams had. Yeah. And he ended up uh, committing suicide and I can totally understand why he did because knowing quite a lot about his career mm. uh, and watched a lot of his films, he, he was all about his mind. He was all about his ability to think on his feet, to improvise, to be the the quickest and the funniest person in the room and one of the things that happens and notably happens with um, dementia with Lewy bodies and all dementia I'm sure um, is just a kind of withering effect on your mm. mind and your ability to be um, present and to be quick and to be um, on your toes all the time I oh, suppose. it was really hard when Robin died because mm. dad worked with him on Hook. Yeah. Um, oh God, I didn't know him well at all but from what I did know of him you know I saw quite a lot of him when I was a kid when because we, we moved to LA for a bit when dad was making Hook mm-hmm. um, oh yeah, he, was, he was lovely he was lovely me and my brother nearly drowned him in a pool <laughs> um, but I mean you have to tell us what happened <laughs> uh, well we were just um, it was a party uh, who's, some, someone on the cast of crew I forget who it was had a party and um, it, for all you know a big sort of barbecue for all of every, everyone's families and we were just mucking around with him in a pool because he was, it was like, he was such a big kid. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, me and my brother, I think we sort of sort of went on, tried to sort of, I think we tried to push him down like a shoulder each and the poor man nearly drowned. Um, but uh, <laughs> Taking it too far. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a good example of, we, we tend to ask a lot of our guests, um, we, you know, Give us an example of situations you've been in that probably normal people, normal in terms of people who uh, didn't grow up around fame, mm. would have experienced. That sounds like a, a great example of that. Yeah. Does anything else pop up off the top of your head that where we can uh, just see the slight ridiculousness of it all? <laughs> um, well, we went. Uh, well, we we living in LA for, for a bit. Yeah, we lived amazing. we lived in LA for. A few, I, I think Hook is probably the time when there was the most sort of like showbiz kind of experiences Um, because we'd go to set a lot and they, you know, on, uh, (laughs) uh, they, they um, cast loads of uh, Hell's Angels, LA Hell's Angels Mm -hmm. as pirates. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were properly grizzled, amputated, um, very scary looking men who were very, very friendly and very lovely. Um, and, you know, we'd go, like, hang out on the pirate ship, and it was, you know, it was very cool. So cool. Yeah, it was cool. Uh, and, you know, I was seven. I th- well, I had my seventh birthday when we were out there, and that was, yeah, it was super cool. But, I mean, I was sort of thinking about it. I was thinking about, um, having listened to this podcast, I was thinking about the things that kind of, that might have affected me in terms of fame and, um, yeah, the the experiences that I would have had that a lot of people wouldn't have done, and I think that we are quite a sort of down to earth family. Yeah. Um. So and Dad didn't. Dad thought that a lot of the the trappings of fame. I mean, he think he thought they were bullshit. Yeah. I'm, it's so funny because I was thinking of the word bullshit. Yeah. No, I think he yeah. thought it was bullshit, and I, and I think that if he could have, um, 
been an actor and not had to do publicity or yeah. never had to sign autographs or not be... Re- I mean, he hated being recognised. Right. Hated it. And he hated, like, he found it intrusive and he didn't want to make conversation, no. you know, he didn't want to talk about himself, you know, to people coming up to him in the street. Like, he, you know, there was so much about it that he he kind of didn't want any part of. Um, and so, consequentially, I mean, we were very privileged. You know, we got a lot of you know, sort of advantages that we wouldn't have had had Dad not have been so successful. Of course. Um, but I think that he... I think I think his attitude of not kind of, of seeing um, the business for what it is, I think that kind of... That informed our value system yeah. and that informed how we are... Um, as a family. But I mean, I think the effect that it had on me more than anything um, is feeling that I don't really belong because I, you know, he, he came from um, obviously a very working class background. My mum came from a very working class background um, and they both sets of grandparents were very, um, you know, came from nothing came. I mean, my um, paternal grandmother came from abject poverty Um, but they they had very little, but they had their respectability, and they were very kind of um, law abiding, upright, sort of um, very proper. Yeah. Um, so I I was brought up basically with a working class value system mm-hmm. in a very privileged environment. Um, and that meant that, like, at school, I didn't... I mean, there were there were quite a lot of children of famous people at my school, um, but I didn't fit in with any of them because I thought the things that they valued were bullshit. Right. Um, but, and, and equally now, um, I find that whether I'm... Whether my work is in acting or fashion or publishing, I don't fit in anywhere. Mm. I don't really fit in with other actors... I, yeah, fashion people I sort of rubbed along with, but I think I always did quite a good job of camouflaging. Yeah. Because, and I think we are, in this country, we are still really preoccupied with class. Um, and I think that f- fame is almost its own class. Um, Do you think it's helped to give you a, what I would describe as a healthy distrust of people? Um. I think it is, uh, yeah, I guess it's it's a good bullshit. Um, Ometer. Ometer, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I can kind of, I can sniff out when someone becomes interested in me, when they find out who my dad is, that yeah. they literally sort of prick up yeah. and suddenly you can see that they're, that they find um, there's kind of something in it for them. There's some sort of transaction that they're going to get out of any uh, any relationship that they might have with me yeah. even if it's just being able to say i'm friends with exactly. the daughter of yeah. exactly exactly yeah. And, I, and and that i can spot a mile off um the, the reason i asked actually is because it's so funny you keep mentioning things that i've been thinking about recently anyway <laughs> so i was thinking i was looking at fucking linkedin earlier on oh god and um you know you see people who you've previously worked with and they're like now very high up the ladder of various industries or whatever that you've worked in mm-hmm. and i was really thinking about you know why 
potentially I haven't um, done similar thing. I mean, I've done lots and lots and lots of different things, mm. but um, I haven't kind of stuck to one industry and climbed that ladder to to a point where some of my colleagues and peers have done. Sure. And I was just really thinking while I was on the tube here, I was like, I think a lot of it is about I just distrust people. So, I don't actively distrust people, but I feel like I can smell it so viscerally mm. when someone is just being sycophantic to someone else to get ahead. Mm. And I find it so uncomfortable mm. that I would rather, and this obviously is totally self-defeating, but I would rather not be ahead <laughs> than pretend to be mates with someone who I don't actually trust or don't feel like is someone I have uh, uh, anything in common with or someone I want to hang out with or mm. someone who cares about me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know, if, you know, it's not to the same degree as as I'm sure what you you feel in that instance because you're because of your father but I think it's a similar thing in lots of ways mm. is either you're willing to you know I know people who literally will pretend to be friends with people mm. just to get ahead and stuff mm. and and it's a similar thing in that you know I want to be friends with this person because their father is someone yeah. I've never met. I probably never will met me, and I just want to be able to say to my other friends that that's. Well, a thing. I think sometimes you get people who are they're like sort of tourists. They're sort of trying to c- collect mementos of, of um, in human form. Hmm. Um, but I mean, my dad was actually quite good at what you're describing. He was quite good at uh, hustling. Oh, was it? Yeah, no, he was, and he and he could. I think he could kind of compartmentalize. He could kind of go. Um, yeah, that person is a bit of a whatever. Um, but I, and I don't think he would have articulated this exactly, but I think he would have been able to say to himself, but they're useful to me. Yeah. So I'm going to... I think... But he was quite good at, like, protecting his integrity. Yeah. Um, but again, like I was saying earlier, like how he had these sort of boundaries very clear around home and work. Mm. So I think when he was at work... It was like, okay, well, I'm going to do what I need to. And certainly earlier on in his career, I'm going to do what I need to do to get that job or to meet that director or whatever. Yeah. Um, whereas he, at home, he was much more, um, he, he often didn't carry his relationships on after he'd finished a yeah, job. No. He often, I think there were quite a few people who would have really quite liked to have been friends with him, but he didn't really have that many proper friends in the industry. There were lots of people he'd worked with and lots of people who he liked very much and, you know, might occasionally go out for dinner with. But generally speaking, mm. he didn't really, he wasn't interested. No. He would much prefer to like, because he loved cooking and he loved, you know, he would much prefer to like, I don't know, cook cook a really lovely meal, drink a really nice glass of wine and like watch a archaeol you know, a time, like time, time team. team. Yeah, yeah, I saw yeah, you write about time, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah time yeah. team or or yeah, you know, some sort of esoteric documentary. Um so I think I, I understand what you're saying. I, but, I get that. But I, I so I, I think that's really healthy. Mm. Um and uh you know, as a freelancer, I'm pretty similar in a lot of ways. I think I just think it's very rare that you find people that, you know, A you like, B you trust, C, you know, you don't piss off yeah. <laughs> or, or or something similar. Yeah. Um but it sounds to me that's uh, and and I think you you mentioned kind of more specifically maybe earlier in his career mm. because obviously later in his career backed up by supreme experience and talent you know mm. he always had the talent but everyone knew he had the talent yeah so that hustling thing I I can kind of I can relate to the hustling thing too mm. but it's just I think I'm talking maybe a bit more on the the very um, 
far end of that thing where I just see people who are literally just sucking up to people, and, yeah. and I find that very awkward. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. No, but it is. Yeah, it it's is a very awkward. healthy thing to, to be able to do that. I think you know. Mm. Obviously, I wish good. I was as good at hustling as you. He was. He was good at compartmentalizing. Yeah, um, Rosa, I've enjoyed this so much, and actually, what we've this is like a first for me because I always have my questions ready, and actually, you saw the questions, a lot of the questions in advance, mm. but I haven't looked at any of my questions once, Aww. and I feel like we've covered every single question, but without it being in the state of sometimes these things happen, and you, you know, you find yourselves not having anything to talk about, so you go to the next question, but. I feel like we covered everything and I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I hope, oh I, hope I haven't upset you. No, no, you haven't. Much. No, you haven't at all. No, I'm um, no, I'm really pleased to be here. And I um, I think I was a little bit on, it t- kind of took me quite a while to to decide if I wanted to come on here, but I'm really glad that I have. Yeah. We have one more question that we do ask everyone, um, which is, if you could have your life all over again and swap so you hadn't had a famous father, would you swap? So you still have Bob, but he wouldn't have been famous. No, I wouldn't change a thing. You wouldn't change a thing? No, I wouldn't because I think because he got so much satisfaction out of his work and he he loved it so much that um, I think if I was to live a life again with him without that, um, he'd be missing out. Yeah. And I wouldn't deprive him of that. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Is there anything, you've, you've mentioned your one-woman show, do you want to plug that? Do you want to plug the book? Can people buy the book? Yeah, um, so you can buy the book on Amazon. It's called It's All Going Wonderfully Well. Uh, and there's a subline, isn't there? My, is it? Uh, uh, my, I've got it. Oh, my no. life with. I've got a copy. growing up with Bob. Growing Hoss, up, growing uh, up with, with Bob, Bob Hoskins. Hoskins. I should know that, really. Uh, well, I should. I'm I just, should know that. I'm always pleased to make it look like I've done good deep research. <laughs> when done the, a really when, deep dive. When the reality is a little bit on Friday and a lot yesterday. Um, okay, and your one woman show. It's called. Um, uh, 213 things about me and we'll be touring in the autumn okay and uh, touring the country yeah okay and so keep an eye on your website probably for yeah, uh, stuff on that yeah no please read my blog it's um, just rosahoskins.com and I talk primarily um, about mental health lovely guys definitely do that uh, thanks again Rose amazing uh, please guys at home do press that subscribe button we'd love to have you we've we've got a we've got a a beautiful, growing audience. That's the way I'm describing it now. It's growing each time we release, so thank you so much. Uh, do leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts too, because that really helps uh, push us up the algorithm. And, uh, you know, you never know. One day we might get in the new and noteworthy section. Find us on Instagram at Almost Famous the Podcast and on Twitter at Pod Almost Famous. And until next time, thanks again for listening. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.